0: I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you... A Million Murders! Hello! Hello! We are back, everybody. Um... I'm just going to go ahead and get right into it. So, today, I am not doing a murder. I'm doing more of a true crime case. Um, This is about the two Jennifers and their survival stories. Hmm. So, I'd heard about these two cases. One, because of my favorite murder. um, And then the other one was just like some random Facebook... Or like YouTube video that I came across. Mm -hmm. And it kind of told the, almost the end of the story at first. And then I was like, what? And then I got completely invested into it. And then realized that these two cases, their names are Jennifer. So I'm like, this is the two Jennifers. Hmm. And I'm going to cover them both. Okay. So, first we're going to start with Jennifer Shewitt. In August of 1990, Jennifer Shewitt was eight years old and living with her mother Elaine, who was a single mom. She was about to start third grade at Sybil Nagel Elementary School in Dickinson, Texas. She always slept in her mom's bed, but her mom asked that she slept in her own bed that night. Sometime during the night on August 9th, a man entered her bedroom through the window and took her. When she woke up, He had told her that he was an undercover police officer and put her in his car. So while she's asleep, he grabs her and Mm -hmm. then at some point she wakes up, you know, and he's like, it's fine, I'm an undercover cop and he puts her in the car. After driving for a bit, he stopped in the parking lot of her school. When he offered her candy, she refused. Jennifer knew that things weren't adding up. He told her that her mother would come to pick her up, but that never happened instead he drove further on into a field and trigger warning her attacker held a knife to her throat and asked if she was scared he then choked her and sexually assaulted her she was dragged into the field and then at some point when she was unconscious he slit her throat Hmm. the man left her there thinking she was dead but jennifer survived She laid there for more than 12 hours, unable to move or scream, but she survived. She was found by children playing in the field the next day and was airlifted to a hospital. Yeah. So, I mean, just out the gate, just a horrific crime happening. And she was left for dead. And then she wasn't found until the next day. Mm -mm. You know, luckily it wasn't, it's Texas, so it's not going to be super cold until like December, January because i mean if this was like kentucky yeah right now telling yeah yeah you never know i mean it's november and it's snowing today so and it was 73 yesterday literally mm-hmm. this is not a joke <laughs> for those of us who live here y'all know um so yeah she's there lifted to the hospital at the scene the police found jen's clothing along with a man's underwear and t-shirt the DNA evidence was too little, and the authorities were limited by technology of their time. Back at the hospital, Jennifer was told that she could not speak because of her injuries. She never gave up. She started writing down everything she remembered from that night, including the brand of cigarettes he smoked and his name that he told her, which was Dennis. Mm-hmm. Jennifer wrote that on the night of her abduction, she was wearing a pink t-shirt and white underwear, white underwear with blue roses. I was asleep. A man opened the window and grabbed me. I remember writing down just every little detail that I could remember, everything that I thought would help in finding him, Jennifer Shewitt told 48 Hours. She wrote the man was white, wore glasses, had a sharp knife, and had one or two green tattoos. He had a black mustache and was in his 30s. He had me sitting on his lap as he was driving and held me there. He tried, he's trying to calm me down, telling me everything's going to be okay. I'm an undercover police officer. He said he was an undercover cop, big gun. He said, I don't have my gun or badge right now, she wrote at age eight. Jennifer Shewitt was able to describe the man's vehicle for police as two doors, a yucky bluish color. I remember saying that he looked greasy and that he may have had a scar or something on his face. And i remember writing down that there were beer cans in the car and there were cigarettes and the brand of cigarettes that he had she wrote some of the cigarette packages were gold and white and some packages red and white she worked with a forensic artist to develop a composite sketch jennifer was discharged about two weeks later and she got her voice back too but the investigation was not doing so well after a point the leads stopped coming through And as the years passed by, the case was handed over to different investigators, but with no results. It wasn't until 18 years later, those things would change. Hmm. So, I mean, this child has overcome so much already. She's eight years old. She's had her throat slit. She can't speak. But she finally gets her voice back. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just like a miracle that she even made it through. And she's made almost a full recovery. Mm-hmm. So with the technology improving, even a small amount of DNA was enough to put it in the database to look for a match. The evidence from the case was sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. In September, 2009, they got a hit on the DNA. The attacker's identity had finally come to the forefront. It was Dennis Earl Bradford. He was convicted in 1997 for kidnapping and assaulting a woman, and his DNA had been in the system ever since. So this happened in 1990. So seven years later, you know, he gets convicted for this kidnapping and assault, and uh, he was never identified as a suspect in Jennifer's case because he moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, where he was caught six years later after committing a similar crime, Mm -hmm. where he kidnapped the woman, and he, this is all a trigger warning. Okay, raped her at knife point and slit her throat, telling her he was going to kill her. That victim survived as well and was able to provide Bradford's tag number to authorities. Wow. Yeah. According to CNN, Bradford was originally charged with attempted first-degree murder, but prosecutors took the murder charges off the table for some reason. So I don't know what happened. Yeah. I don't know if they thought they didn't have enough to convict him of that and they didn't want to lose the case or what but then a Little Rock jury refused to convict Bradford for the rape yeah Bradford was sentenced to 12 years in 1997 but was released from prison a mere three years later what yeah and he had a toddler and a baby at the time he committed the Little Rock rape Uh -uh. so okay when he was brought in for questioning He was asked if he had heard of Jennifer Shewitt, to which he replied that he had heard of her. Then they asked if he had anything to do with the crime. He eventually confessed and said that he doesn't know why he did it. The police officer said that he would be proud of the young lady she's become. He instantly starts crying and says she's alive. Oh, gosh. Yeah. They told him she, in fact, was alive. It's not about me anymore, Jennifer told CNN in September. It's about all the little girls that go to sleep at night. I know there are so many girls out there who have been raped and hurt. You have to fight back. Bradford's arrest came after DNA and other forensic tests led police to him. This was a huge day for me. She would tell CNN on Tuesday, and I want to see things through. Uh, I want to see this through the end. The rest will come out during the trial. Dennis waived his right to a court-appointed attorney when he appeared. In October of 2009 saying he would retain his own for security reasons the hearing was held at the Galveston County Jail which is in Texas still Mm -hmm. and not in a courtroom the station my dad's Mm from Galveston it's about an hour away from Houston for people who don't know Um, the judge ordered Bradford to undergo a physical and mental evaluation and set bail at 1 million dollars upon conviction An attempted capital murder charge could result in the sentence of life in prison. Unfortunately, he would never receive the justice Jennifer had wished for him. On May tenth, 2010, he hung himself in the Galveston County Jail where he had a one-man cell and no foul play was suspected. Of course. You know, I mean... (sighs) I've been to that courthouse. Have you? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes. That's where the guy that Hit my dad and them. He went to jail. Oh, at that jail. jail. Wow. Probably sent off eventually somewhere, but... Right, but that's where he ended up after the Mm -hmm. fact. Yeah, so that's where all of that happened. Um, So, while Jennifer was happy knowing that Dennis would never hurt anyone again, she was angry that he killed himself. She said, I really wanted to be part of solving my own case. I wanted to help because I was only—I was the only living witness, and I wanted to go to trial and see this through to the end. On the twentieth anniversary of her kidnapping, Jennifer drove to his gravesite and read her victim impact statement there. As she sat by his grave reading her statement, she was bitten by a fire ant, just like the ones biting her the night she was attacked. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, them fire ants ain't no joke. Right, and so well, she was actually laid on a pile of fire ants Mm -mm. like it was probably unintentional but so that whole night as she laid there barely alive she was being like I think she was kind of slipping into consciousness Mm -hmm. in and out and she'd be like she would wake up because she was getting bitten by all these fire ants which is like (sighs) so sad um but then that happened to her while she was there so Jennifer has been using her story to help other survivors. She travels the country to share her experience and is outspoken about what happened to her. The assault on Jennifer affected her in more ways than one. Jennifer's fallopian tubes had become blocked as a result of an infection she caught from her rapist. And her only hope was a very ins- was very expensive in vitro fertilization. As a result of him raping me as an 8-year-old child... I cannot have children normally, she told Jeff Rosen on today, um, on this Monday that all this happened, as Rosen followed up on a report on Shewitt that he did in 2010. I am an only child. I've always wanted a big family. Enter Dr. Craig Witts, a Houston fertility specialist who offered his clinic services to Shewitt and her fiancé for free, hmm. which is such a big deal because in vitro is so expensive. Mm -hmm. So it was really sweet that he did that. And it's sad that it's so expensive. Yeah. Like, you know, but I mean, it's such a huge process and all the medications and all the Mm -hmm. stuff you have to go through. I mean, it's like part of it's at least like 20 grand for, you know, to go through all of this for all the medications and stuff. So they're getting it for free. And to Wits it was a way of trying to help repair the damage. It was without any thought, for God's sakes, what can we do to help this person and try to make things right? Wits said. Her story really is a story of survival. Wits' treatment worked. The pregnancy was moved. The pregnancy has moved Shewitt closer to being able to put that horrible night in August of nineteen ninety behind her. She thought about what she'll say when her little girl is old enough to hear the details of the crime I always sought justice for myself and for others she told today so I hope that my whole experience she can see that you know I kept going and I hope that she learns from that and always stands up for herself and what she believes in she named her daughter Jenna and she later had a little boy she named Jonah she is living a happy life with her two children and her partner Jonathan Martinez Mm. So, I mean, she literally fought and fought and fought for her case. Mm-hmm. It got, it stayed cold for a long time. And finally, DNA caught up, which we love to see. Mm-hmm. We love to see it. Recently, like within this month, which this is probably going to air in December, but in November, you know, the Lady of the Dunes case mm-hmm. has been partially solved. We now know who the Lady of the Dunes is mm-hmm. after. You know Years Decades Of not knowing Who she was Of questioning All that stuff Like they now know Who the Lady of the Dunes is And now they're going forward To help solve her murder Because they at least Have identified her And that took place In New York And she ended up Being from Tennessee Um, I haven't looked As much into it But mm-hmm. she was from Tennessee Um, I don't think Very far from us Being in Kentucky Like she wasn't as far away as other, you know, places yeah. in the state. And um she ended up in New York and was brutally murdered and left in a field and we didn't know until this month what happened. Yeah. Or who she was. Who she was. So Yeah, so this girl fought and DNA caught up and they got the killer and they brought him in the interrogation room and, you know, they're just kinda asking him. He's like, Yeah, yeah And there he was like, Well, you know, you'd be proud of the woman that she's become. And I mean, he just puts his head in his hands and starts bawling and he's like, she's alive," Cause I mean, he thought he killed her mm-hmm. and he just moved on, but he just kept on doing these things. Yep. So he obviously has issues, you know, and then he completed suicide and you know, justice wasn't served, but we did at least find out who did it. Yeah. You know, so, but she survived and, She has two babies now and it's fantastic. So, that is the story of Jennifer Shewitt. Now we have Jennifer Moray. In the early morning hours, and this is also a Texas case. So, these are two Jennifer's, two Texas survival stories. So, here we go. In the early morning hours of April 15th, 1995, they also have them like five years apart from each Mm, other. So, that's crazy. Um, Jennifer Moray returned to her Houston apartment. After spending the night out with friends, the 25 year old lawyer lived alone in an apartment complex that boasted a wide range of security features, including an eight foot tall fence around the perimeter and on duty security guards on the property at all times. So very safe place yeah. or supposed to be. Yeah. Supposed to be, you know, and I wondered if I knew where these apartments were when I lived in Houston, I was like, Did oh, I yeah. see them? but Houston's huge. So you never know. Moray finished, uh, getting ready for bed and quickly fell asleep i believe i was in a very very sound sleep when i felt suddenly as i'm coming awake someone on top of me Hmm. someone with their body weight pressing down and holding my body down and grabbing at my underwear and trying to yank them off and i was very befuddled i didn't know what was happening struggling in the dark against this attacker jennifer moray had a terrifying revelation a realization And I reached my hands up And I feel this knife that's being held against my throat She said And it was the clearest thought that went through my brain And woke me up Oh, I'm being raped With adrenaline pumping Marae began to scream and fight and kick At her unknown assailant She says that her fighting back Enraged the man on top of her And he stabbed her on -hmm. the right side of her face Yeah at that moment, she believed he cut her eye out. Mm. I mean, I just can't even imagine. Ooh, no. This is, this is rough. So, you know, for anybody who has trigger warnings with, you know, sexual assault, you, I mean, I know we're halfway into it at this point, but you may just want to skip this if you need to. And we understand. Um, I took a very hard blow to my right eye. This was just this, ex- there was just this explosion of blood, like a hot waterfall just pouring out. After Moray was stabbed, she says that she found her resolve to fight for her life. I just felt like I have to get him off me, she said. I have to stop this. I cannot be raped and I cannot be killed. She continued to fight back and scream, but the man went for her throat next. I didn't think of what the next step could be, not until my throat was slit, Mm -hmm. Moray said. When my throat was cut, then I knew that was the first time that I thought that I'm going to die. I didn't want to die, I just wanted to get out of there and I would have done anything to live at that moment. As Moray bled profusely from her neck and face, her attacker dragged her across the room and into the bathroom. He left her there and went back for his knife. Somehow she remained conscious and was thinking fast. Her bathroom didn't have a lock on the door and she knew she wasn't strong enough to keep the door closed while standing, so instead Jennifer Moray sank to the floor, pressed her back against the bathroom door and put her feet against the tub so that she could use all the strength in her legs to keep the door shut and I just push and hold as hard as I can she said at that moment or moments suddenly it's quiet Marie could hear the man move in her apartment Marie could hear the man in her apartment walking around and moving items she grabbed a roll of toilet paper and held it against her neck as she waited to see what he would do next Then, I hear the sound of his pants zipping up, just the zipper going up, and I keep waiting in there, and I'm bleeding so profusely. After some time, Marae couldn't hear the assailant in her apartment anymore, and she knew she had to make a choice. I just knew I had to get out of there, because the option was, I stay in there cowering, scared of what's on the other side of the door. If I do that, I'm going to bleed to death. Mm -hmm. She decided to open the bathroom door. However, her hands were so slick with blood, she couldn't grip the door handle. Then she realized the door was jammed shut because she had pressed so hard with her legs. Mm. And I had another one of those thoughts, and it was, "I've survived the attack, but I'm going to bleed to death in here because I can't open the bathroom door." Mm. Ugh, I mean, just, just a lot. Like, it's like, okay, well, I've survived it, and now I can't even get the can't door get open. Out, yeah, and now I'm just going to die in here. Um, but with enough persistence, Marae wrenched the door open and crawled out. She tried to turn on the lights, but they didn't work. The man had cut the power to her apartment. She then went to the landline, but he had cut that too. Lord. Yeah, because I mean, because back then, 95, it's a landline, your power's out. Oh well, you could still use your phone because the phone wiring is all underground. Mm -hmm. But um, he had cut that too. So, I mean, he had really planned this out, you know. Fortunately, Marie had a cell phone in her apartment, which like 1995, yeah, having a cell phone. Honey Mm -hmm. Okay but she's a lawyer So Yeah Different situation You know 1995 We did not have cell phones Mm -mm. Um This is a big city Not at four She's successful Yeah You know I didn't get one until I was like 12 And that was back when the Nokias were there So Mm -hmm. I mean that was still a very early Model of cell phone Just hold Yeah (laughs) (laughs) It is what it is So she found it And she dialed 911 This is what transpired So this is like a script from the, it's like the actual script from the 911 call. Please help me. This guy just tried to cut my throat. Ma'am, there's blood everywhere. I'm covered in blood. He knew my name. I don't know who it was. I know I locked the door. I don't know how he got in the apartment. Okay, ma'am, try and calm down a little bit. Why would anybody do something like this? This That's what Jennifer says. Then the dispatcher says i don't know we have some crazy people in this world but i want you to stay on the line jennifer what's your name the dispatcher said my name is richard jennifer said i'm sorry i'm calming down which bless her heart like she's literally yeah. apologizing and she's literally at her throat slashed mm-hmm. and stabbed in the face um and he said there you go you're doing fine right now you're doing fine at some point during this call around 10 minutes Marae tells her 911 dispatcher, Richard Everett, that someone is knocking at her door. She believes it's the Houston Police Department, but Everett tells her that law enforcement is not there yet. Mm. Don't answer the door right now. Jennifer calling through the locked apartment door, hello? And then she speaks to the 911 dispatch. They said it's security. The dispatcher said it's security. Then Jennifer calling through the apartment door again, what's your name? The dispatcher said, do you see out the peephole? Moray tells her dispatcher that the man at her door is offering help. I related this to my dispatcher, and he says, Jennifer, if you don't know who this is on the other side, do not open the door. Yeah. Following Everett's instructions, she refuses to unlock the door, which kept her alive because her assailant was the man at the door. Mm -mm. A few minutes later, Moray heard many voices in the hallway and Everett confirmed that the Houston police and fire were there. Fire department were there. As soon as she opened her apartment door, she collapsed. Murray was taken to the hospital and survived the attempt on her life. Later that night, police quickly discovered who committed the brutal attack. The apartment's on duty security guard. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. A 26 year old man named Brian Wayne Gibson though moray's throat was slashed gibson missed her jugular vein by millimeters wow millimeters the stab wound on the right side of her face grazed the corner of her eye but ultimately missed it in her apartment moray's blood was splattered on the walls and ceiling she said that while she recovered in the hospital she was visited by many of the emergency responders who came to her rescue the police and the detectives, they came. They all came into the hospital to the emergency room and post surgeries. she said. And they were like, girl, you put up one hell of a fight. After Murray was taken to the hospital, Houston police entered her apartment and found Gibson's underwear, a belt, a glove, a Pinkerton security guard hat, and the knife. While questioned by police, Gibson told them he was attacked as well but they quickly connected his possessions to Murray's attack and he was charged while employed by Pinkerton security for the previous three years. Gibson was constantly reassigned to different jobs after receiving complaints from clients. Instead of firing him, Pinkerton eventually assigned him to work nights at the apartment complex where Jennifer Murray lived. Mm -mm. Okay. Now this is a problem. Yeah. All right. Obviously we know, But more than we know, because between 1991 and 1995, 130 Pinkerton guards were convicted of felonies in Texas alone. The Pinkertons have a long and often bloody history in the U.S., dating back to 1850. So, like, this Pinkerton security thing has been around forever. Yeah. I mean, 1850, okay? Um, Now, having a felony doesn't mean anything, but... You should extensively look into those felonies. Like, Mm -hmm. what are they? Yeah. You know what I mean? So the Pinkertons... Yeah. They have the long, bloody history. Uh, The agency still exists today. Mm -mm. And recently made headlines in 2020 after a Pinkerton security guard... God. (laughs) After a Pinkerton security guard shot and killed a man during a Patriot rally in Denver. Wow. So it's just a mess, you know. So Brian Wayne Gibson was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 20 years in prison. But Jennifer Murray's recovery from the attack was far from over. She returned to her apartment only to retrieve her belongings and moved out. Though she was a lawyer, Moray hopped around from job to job, taking positions at temporary agencies that she was overqualified for. As is the case with many survivors of violent crimes, the trauma continued to resurface. But with enough time, she began to rebuild her life. Murray filed a lawsuit against Pinkerton Security, and in 1998, she was awarded an undisclosed amount of money from the agency. Good, yeah, because I mean, hello. And who put somebody who has been complained on by other clients? Oh well, we're just what you work the night shift. The night shift at an apartment complex. I mean, uh, so anyway, um. The same year, she opened her own family practice in Fort Worth. And met the man who would become her husband. Long after the attack and that harrowing 911 call, Jennifer Murray and Richard Everett, the dispatcher, are still good friends. Aww. I love it. I love it. Having instinct, intuition, and a big heart, Richard saved my life, Murray said. And for that, he will always be one of the most important people that's ever impacted my life. And I was lucky enough... That when I got married, he came to my wedding. Aww. I love it. Today, Jennifer M. Caldwell, which is her married name, you know, is an accomplished family law attorney in Fort Worth. Hmm. So those are the stories of the two Jennifers from Texas that survived their brutal attacks and went on to have, you know, the happy ever after that they can have, and they're working through their trauma and... I wish nothing but the best for them Mm -hmm. That was good Thank you You're welcome I was like these stories need to be told Yeah You know it's Our podcast is called A Million Murders And it probably should have been A Million Murders and more Because we give you paranormal We give you you know true crime On the murder aspect But I also like to do survivor stories Mm -hmm. too Because it's good to hear That you know People do survive Yeah. You know the lucky ones So Yes I hope you I have, have enjoyed one. it You have one what? Oh a, a survival. survival Ooh I love a good survival mm-hmm. story honey I have a survival I love it I wish they all survived But I know It would be great If it was just A million survivals But Yes So That is it For Me today If you Have any questions Comments Concerns Send them in to us If you have stories Please send them into to us At a murders At gmail.com And you can hop on To our Instagram And check out the Pictures of the places People and things <laughs> People, places, and things Yes um, <laughs> You can hop on Our Facebook page Slash group Interact there or mm-hmm. Sometimes we post stuff We try to post as much as we can But So yeah Yes. So, thank you all for tuning in. And we hope you come back for a million. (laughs) And we hope you come back for a million million more. more. Bye. Bye.